Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. And I uh, want to let you know that these are actually great days for the gospel. Um, I don't know if you are sensing this or not, but your neighbors and your loved ones are probably as about as open to the gospel as they've been in years. And uh, God, uh, by his mercy, brings COVID into our lives so that we may recognize that we are but frail humans whose life is like the grass that withers and blows away. And uh, so it's time for people to reflect on the reality that it is appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment. And so this is a good time to be talking to your friends and neighbors about how they can be saved and uh, how they may be rescued from the wrath that's coming. So I want to encourage you with that. Um, secondly, um, I have uh, been made aware that in Sunday school, some of you really had a struggle with certain sections of scripture in John this morning. And uh, it wasn't just one person, so nobody's on the spot here. But um, this is the thing, like if you're in my class, you really get the truth. The rest of you, it's like second level stuff. That was, uh, I, I told Mark Partee, Mark fills in for me a lot teaching. I started to play a trick on him and call him like on Saturday night late. And I, Mark, I don't feel too good. You're going to have to get Sunday school for me in the morning. And uh, he said he would just mark that part out in the book and not go over it, you know. So if I did that to him. So yeah, y'all ran into some difficulty. But let me just, let me help you with that. I feel like, hey, I'm the pastor. I need to answer this and help you with it. About whoever uh, you forgive their sins or sins are forgiven. If they, if you remit them than they are and uh, so um, you can look that up in John 20 to get the actual quote I didn't memorize the verse for you this morning but uh, here's the reality that section of scripture you need to know and understand that it's spoken to a group of people not to an individual so that Jesus is not uh, giving power to an individual Peter or anybody else to forgive people's sins he, he doesn't have that power but he is speaking to the church and did you know that as the church, we have the authority to announce whether a person's sins are forgiven or not? Now, here's what we did this morning. We announced through baptism this morning that we proclaim to the world that we believe that Jesus has saved Bev Rossiter and forgiven her of her sins. We proclaim that. We as the church are the only ones that have the authority to do that. I can't do it individually as a preacher. She can't even do it for herself. But the church body, which is the body of Christ, has the authority to announce to the world that Christ has forgiven. Now, others may come to us and say, I'm ready to be baptized. And we look at their life and we say, we don't think you are. Your life has not changed. We don't see any evidence of the life of Christ in you. Therefore, you will not be baptized. And that is the church saying we have the authority to say to you, we don't believe your sins are forgiven. We do not believe you're in Christ. The church alone has that authority. Here's another authority that we also have. We have the authority of the Lord's Supper, which is your ongoing testimony of your life in Christ. And if we have a church member that has been baptized, but they see, they sometimes they can trick us with baptism and get through for a minute. And then their life goes on and we begin to notice 
They're not living for Christ. We're not talking about someone who's fallen into sin. We're not talking about a believer who commits a trail of sins even. We're talking about someone whose life is unrepentant about their sin. You know what we say to them? We say, you're now excommunicated. You're no longer a member. You cannot come to the table. You're not allowed. Do you know what that is saying to them and to the world? Their sins are not forgiven. We as a church have the authority to announce it. We don't believe their profession of faith to be real. Their sins are not forgiven. How do you like that? You see, as an individual, you can go around all you want to and say, Oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. But it is not real until a church says, Yes, you are. How do you like that little individualistic, autonomous Americans? This is a group issue. And so if you have a relative that's saying to them, to you and to others, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't have to be a member to be a Christian. You know what that's saying? Uh, well, no, you don't have to be a member to be a Christian, but if you are a Christian, you'll be a member. Ding! Let's try reading the Bible for a change. Okay, so this church thing is no small issue. And uh, so, I, you know... Um, that's just it. Okay, so are y'all okay now? Everybody good. All right, I just want to make sure. Um, I probably should have had a Zoom meeting with all of my adult teachers and said to them, um, poor Brian Petzl. Brian, he always, he'll email me or text me a question. And you know what I do to him? What do you think? And then he's like, well, I'm not sure. What do you think? And I said, well, it's up to you to look it up. And so I do the mean thing to Brian. I make him research, you know. And so I guess I did that to you all this week. I pretended like all of you teachers were Brian Petzl, and I made you look it up. Okay, so hopefully that will help and your faith is not destroyed. Um, the power of forgiveness of sin does not lie in a certain location in Europe. That power doesn't. God alone can forgive sin. The church announces it. God causes it. The church announces it. That's how it works. Okay? We are the body of Christ. What do you think that Holy Spirit thing was about in John today? It's empowering the body of Christ. His body animates it. And so that's what we do. All right. So I didn't realize I was going to have to preach two sermons, but Jim Rucker asked me how long the sermon was, and I said it's really short, but there are three of them. And so, so okay, we got to get moving. I, I, uh, one, next couple of weeks, uh, this Sunday, next Sunday, I wanted to jump out of 1 Timothy for a little bit and get into Psalms uh, 66 and 67, God willing. And then Christmas rolls around, and we got to do that for a while and preach those sermons. And um, I hope that some of you, after Christmas, you come to me and say, Pastor, you preached from that passage of Scripture before. It's Christmas, guys. Okay, so, I mean, there's only certain ones in there, and that's all you got. Okay, so um, hopefully, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll be okay with that. Psalm 66, um, I just wanted this to be sort of a Thanksgiving type of, of atmosphere today. Just to be thankful. And to, to just glorify the Lord for all that He's done. And so uh, the title of the message is, Come See What God Has Done, Psalm 66. Now, here's a statement that you're going to have to take in. Okay, you ready? It's super complicated. Not really. Here it is. Nothing works on its own. Nothing. There is nothing that works all by itself. 
Nothing in, in all the universe, nothing that works on its own. Nature doesn't work on its own. You know, we talk about the laws of nature. The laws of nature don't cause nature to work. The laws of nature just tell us normally this is what nature does. Right? It's what the creation normally does, how we can observe how it normally works. But it doesn't cause nature to work that way. There's a different cause. The laws don't cause it. Okay, let me illustrate it this way. There's a law that says heading north on 104 is 55 miles an hour. That law does not cause me to go 55, especially if I'm running late to hospital surgery in Columbus. That was bad. So I try to set the cruise control to stay right there. Um, so it doesn't cause it. What causes the car to go to the speed is me. I'm <laughs> not causing it. So in nature, we look at nature, we think all oh, the laws of the laws don't cause nature to do that. They're just our observation of it, and we catalog it, and this is how things, the creation normally works. Events don't happen by chance. You know, it's not like, you know, your life is kind of tough and you just drew, just drew the short straw. I mean, it doesn't happen by chance. Here's, here's a shocker for you. Things don't take place according to the law of karma either. I know for you Baptists, that's probably a shock to your system. Why are y'all dabbling in those kinds of thoughts? Don't even let that come at your mouth. Okay? Here's the reality. God works. You, you, there you go. You, you want to know? Here, here, here are your three statements of theology. God is. One. Two. God works. Three. God saves. There you go. You good? Okay, we're done. Can you can you repeat that back to me, Mark? Okay, good. You're Yes, thank you, Mark. That's good. That's good. So we have one convert, Mark. It was tough, but we got him there. God works by his divine energy. That's how God works. And this through this divine energy of God, he governs his creation. Through that, he preserves his creation. And also through that same working of his divine energy, his divine power, he energizes subordinate powers, powers under him. He energizes them in such a way that they carry out his divine plan and decree. Now, who would be like subordinate powers or powers under him? It would be you, of course. God works by energizing you to get motivated and to have the ability to jump up and to do what you got in mind. And it is through that that you actually carry out what God has planned and decreed already. It simply is not true. This is not a true statement that God gives humans energy 
and then humans get to unilaterally decide what they want to do with it. That would put humans in the driver's seat, now wouldn't it? That God empowers the little gods called humans to do their thing. God's actions are real, they are final, and they are effective. Notice his work in your world, this world. Notice his work in your church. Notice his working in your life. Take a look and see what God has done. Now, in Psalm 66, I at least have a, a logical division of all of this, and maybe we can think through it in that way. Um, it's kind of like breaking a song up into parts, but, you know, we've got to do something our minds can handle. I want you to see in Psalm 66, first of all, that God acts powerfully. Powerfully acting. That's what God does. Now look in verses 1 through 4. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. God acts in a powerful way. Look at the fame of his power. In verses 1 and 2 it says, Sing the glory of his name. God's name, of course, would be his own renown, his own fame. His manifestation of his unique, unrivaled person and power. Also note that because of the surpassing splendor of his person, the praise given to him in verse 2 must also be glorious. Glory has a lot of different meanings here, but we can at least say this. There must be an outshining brightness to it all. The opposite of it would be to be dull and dark and boring. Let me um, give you uh, something that will certainly help you. Pastor Dan organizes a worship time for us using music. And he carefully does it, thoughtfully and prayerfully does it. And his task and the task of the others here is to guide you. In a way, a means whereby we must give praise and worship and honor to God. One thing I appreciate about Pastor Dan is his songs are Godward. They're not talking about our strength. They talk about our sin. <laughs> you know what I do well? I sin well. All on my own. I don't even need any help. I do it great. But what I can't do well is to give God the glory and praise that he deserves. That takes the living work of the Spirit of God in me to make that happen. But our praise then is not up to how well Nick Carl plays the lead guitar. It's not dependent upon whether or not Matthew stays on beat or not, even though he does well. It's not dependent upon those things. 
We try to guide you with those things. But you know where it comes from? It comes from your understanding of the glory of God. You are to shout for joy to God. You are to sing the glory of His name. If you are unmotivated in worship, it's because you are not fixed upon God. It has nothing to do with... Some of you want to dictate the notes that are actually played. You think you're God, evidently. And you want to dictate to them exactly how they ought to play how great thou art. I don't like it played that way. We ain't singing to you, thanks. This ain't your concert, girl. This is for God. And so if, if you're just not willing to jump in and shout for joy to God and sing the glory of His name, here's what the Bible would call that. Disobedience. See, the problem you've got is not a music problem, it's an obedience problem. And we just ain't, you know, at this church, I think I've established this already, we just ain't going there. Here's how we carefully decide how we're going to do this. Here's how we decide how we're going to use music and worship. Here's how we decide it. Number one, can the congregation sing it? Many of you love Chris Tomlin, that's great. Nobody can sing Chris Tomlin. Unless you have a voice that's like this. I have to sound like the Bee Gees to sing that. So I, I can't do it, man. Sorry. You know, so we can't do it. I've got a regular guy voice. It's kind of there. You know, my, my range is like four notes. You know, so here we go. And so, um, and never know which one of the four I might hit. So we, we, it, can the congregation sing it? Because this is about everyone all the people giving glory to his name, everybody. The whole church should sing. That's God's special music. So why don't we have specials anymore? Because you're not singing. You sing and it'll be special. Sing. And so the Bible tells us it's a command. Sing the glory of his name. Secondly, is it strongly, undeniably, biblically accurate? That's the other thing. Thirdly, we want to preserve some of the old songs that have been around forever. We want to preserve them. But here's what we've done, people. Grandparents, here's what we're doing. We're tricking the young people. Just hold on with me here. We're tricking them. We're dressing it up. And we're putting a little makeup on it and rolling it out. It's the same song, but we've got just a little different arrangement of the music. And the young people are like, wow, that's great. I've never heard that before. And I don't tell them this. It's in the hymnal. I don't say that. Okay, so you listen, old people, help me. Okay, we're running covert operation here. We're tricking young people everywhere. So please hang in there with me on this because we're getting them. Do you know what it, you know what's going on really honestly? It, this is an exciting thing with with the younger generation coming up, they're hungry for something of substance. You look around. You know the people I have trouble with in my ministry? Baby boomers. And I am one. Do you know why you have trouble with baby boomers? They think it's Burger King. Have it your way. And they've been raised that way. Everything is about the individual. It's me, me, me. And they've been raised that way. And so that's, that's what's on their mind, that kind of thing. So baby boomers have trouble with this. You know who's not having trouble with it? 
Young families are not having trouble with it. They're like, yes, something real. Something real. So hang in there with me. All right, just hang in there. The glory of His name. There's simply zero room in the Christian life for disinterested, distracted, dull praise of God. There's zero room for it. If the whole earth here is under obligation to praise Him in this way, and in this first part is addressing the whole world, if the whole world is under an obligation to praise God in this way, how much more those of us who've been saved by the grace of God are we under obligation to sing to the Lord, to shout for joy to His name? You say, well, I, I just, I'm just not feeling it. Well, good news. The Bible doesn't say when you feel like it. Sing the glory of His name. Isn't that great? It just says, do it. Just, just, just do it. And so we just come, you come in, come, you come to church gathering on, on, on Sundays, ready to go, man. I'm going to sing for the glory of His name. If nobody else does, I'm going to do it. Here's what I'm, uh, I'm, I'm beginning to enjoy about our church. Some of you men are, are, are getting in this, man. You're like, I'm going to sing. I'm going to do it. And you're hitching up your overalls a little tighter. That's what I'm going to do today, woman. I'm going to sing. That's what I'm going to do. Roll your, you know, roll your flannel shirt up. Show your tattoo off. I'm going to sing. And just jump in there. And so many of you are doing that. I mean, just think of this. We have people that work at a factory and rough, hard labor. And they come in here and sing the glory of his name. We have people that are doing surgery at Adena during the week. And they come in here sing to the glory of his name. People of all, all kinds, all ilks, come together, sing. You know what holds us together? The glory of His name. And so we're singing to Him and praising Him. So I, I'm just trying to say to you, this is God's expectation of us. Don't back off. One of those songs we were singing, Dan, a little earlier, I could hear people just singing, just going for it. Now, that's what it's about. That's what God expects of us. So the fame of His power, the fear of His power, the verses 3 and 4 speak of this. About God acting powerfully. He says, say to God, how awesome are your deeds in verse 3. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. So the fear of his power. His power is great. The word power is speaking of his omnipotence. His power is surpassing all things. It cannot even be quantified. And so his power is so great. And so the Christian... The Christian's fear of God is one of respect because we've seen the work of his hand. The non-Christian's fear of God is of terror because they know the work of his hand. Nothing is outside the jurisdiction of the power of God. Notice that. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Note this. The power of the rulers of this world are beholden to the power of God. Christian, act with confidence. God is on his throne. Do, do, let, let me ask you this question. Do you think that God is in heaven just wringing his hands over the recount vote in Georgia? What do y'all think, angels? I wonder how this is going to turn out. Oh, oh gosh. 
Christianity is on the line here. The church may die as a result of this. Everybody knows Kamala Harris is the Antichrist. What are we going to do? Do you know how silly y'all look doing like that? It's silly. You say, well, our country is on the line. I know it's on the line. Let me tell you something. Hey, vote the best you can. I mean, it's like I said, usually these days we've got a choice between Ahaz and Jezebel. I mean, that's about all we got. You know, so I mean, ain't a whole lot of choice here. It's like, oh, we get the false prophet or the Antichrist. We get one or the other. And so, I mean, that's all you got. So the, the problem I'm having, you think, well, you're, uh, Pastor, you're not patriotic. Oh, on contraire. I, I very much so. I, I pray for a nation constantly. Do what I can. But, but let, me, let me say this to you. The problem I'm having with our Christians is it's like all of their hope is in that. And stop putting your hope in people like that. You can't put your hope for the preservation of a nation in the hands of a couple of individuals. Are you kidding me? You, you, what is wrong with you people? We're, we're, we're followers of the risen king. Okay? We're not followers of a 77-year-old multimillionaire who's going to die quickly. Okay? I'm going to get a new hat. Make the church great again. Shelly's ordering those right now. I'm seeing she's on, she's on her phone right now looking up how she can get those. Shelly, we can make money off of those things. We should have had those for the auction. So we should have done. Oh, I'm really smart, just slow. All the earth worships you, sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. So fear is power. We've got to keep going. We've got other things to do here besides me preaching and having too much fun with you. Okay, so God acts powerfully. God also acts providentially. In verses 5 through 15, let me just read that section. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered in my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened, fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Well, uh, all I can say about that last part is I'm glad the form of offering has changed. Y'all leaving animals tied up out there in the, you know, the grand concourse and stuff and Joe having to deal with it. God acts providentially. He providentially delivers his people. You saw that in verses 5 through 7. That's what the, the psalmist is saying. Come and see what God has done. And he talks about his awesome deeds. And you'll notice you have the parting of the Red Sea in verse 6. In the second half of verse 6, you have the parting of the Jordan River. You remember those two episodes. If you don't, go look them up in the Old Testament, how God did that. And there was rejoicing in him in those days. And then it makes a statement. He rules by his might. And notice this. He keeps his watch. His eyes keep watch on the nation. Speaking specifically there. Probably of Egypt. But also of others. 
And there's a, there's a warning here to nations like Egypt who would vaunt themselves against the power of God. See, that was what was at stake here. Not that injustice was being committed against a minority group of people. That's not what God was standing up for here. It's just that the Jews had his name attached to them. And the gods of Egypt were being marching across the stage on display. And God was saying, we're not going to have that anymore. We're not going to do it. And so all of the plagues of Egypt were meant to answer one of the false gods of Egypt. Every one of them. And what God was saying is, he keeps watch on the nations. His eye is on them. And nobody gets away with anything. No one gets one over on God. This is our testimony and witness. And it's just this, come and see what God has done. Just come and see what God has done. And you know the miracle of all miracles, what God has done that's the, the most mysterious and probably I would say the one that's impossible to explain. What God has done is the incarnation of his son. That's the one I, I can't explain. Here's all I know about it, that God sent his son, every bit deity, but taking to himself an additional nature that is the nature of humanity. But having done that, nothing was added to his deity. His humanity in the process does not become deity. And he maintains himself as the perfect representative of the human race. And he willingly sacrifices himself on the cross under the curse of heaven's justice that sinners might go free. Oh, come and see what God has done. And we were the vilest of sinners. Hypocritical, prideful, perverted, sinister, godless, iniquitous, and twisted. But God, uncoerced by anything outside of himself, reached down and chose to call some to himself and to save some. Come and see what God has done. What he did for Israel was a national salvation. What he has done for you is an eternal salvation. Come and see what God has done. He providentially delivers his people. He also providentially disciplines his people. And the psalmist goes on to recount the history. For you, O God, have tested us. His discipline purges. His discipline trains. His discipline sanctifies us. His discipline teaches us. His discipline preserves the reputation of his person on this earth. And then we come out on the other side. And when we do, it is only right for us that we should give him the glory and the praise that he has coming to him because of our trials. Let us not forget what he has done for us in delivering us from the penalty of sin. But also, let us praise him in the trials. For it is through the trials that he is saving us from the power of sin in our lives. Oh, come and see what God has done. God not only acts powerfully and providentially, he acts personally. Verses 16 through 20. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. See, it comes, becomes personal now. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. 
The examples from Israel's history show God's action of national control. How he preserved that nation. Why did he preserve that nation? For one purpose, one purpose only. To bring forth the Messiah. That's why he preserved them. What we read in the Old Testament is primarily not about the individual salvation of someone for eternity. Though we do see that in some of the Jews. But what we see mostly is the preservation of a nation. Why the preservation of that nation? Until the Messiah could come. Until the Messiah could be born from that nation. The Messiah that would save every Jew. That would confess with his mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in his heart that God raised him from the dead. Then that Jew would be saved. And not only for the Jew but also for the Gentile. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so he preserves the channel through which the Messiah would be born. Now notice, when God acts personally here, we have a personal type of relationship with Him. And He has prayer as the conversation now. God has revealed Himself through the works of history. He has recorded it in His Word, what He has done. And so you can read that, you can look at it, you can reflect upon it. And then as you do, the response to us is to talk to God back about that. And so the psalmist here talks about prayer. And he says, he shows us the conditions for God to act through prayer. He talks about what God has done for my soul. And, and look, at, look at this. Look at your prayer. If you're, if you're looking at verse 16 and 17. 17 says, I cried to him with my mouth. What does that mean? There's fervency in prayer. There's not a distraction and disinterest in this. There's fervency in it. There's some heat in this prayer. All of our prayer has to have light. That means that we must have the truth in our praying. That's why we talk about praying through the scriptures. So you have to have light. That is information that's true. You have to have the truth behind your praying. But you also have to have fire. The fervency of it. Your heart must be stirred. And how does your heart get stirred? Well, it is God who does it. Remember, nothing works on its own. It is God who does that. And you cry to him with your mouth. And notice not only the fervency in his praying. But he prays not just fervently but hopefully. He says, and high praise was on my tongue. Before he even finishes the prayer and request, he already has a song of praise in his mind that he's going to use because he knows God is going to answer. Song of praise. He's already got that on his tongue. I'm ready to praise the Lord because I know it's coming. I know God is going to answer And then notice also this about praying. He prays in purity. He says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart. This is an important point for believers. He doesn't say, I had no sin in my heart. Every prayer that we could possibly offer to God is tarnished by our sin. Every prayer that could possibly ever offer to God has been polluted by my own sin. It is an impossibility that on my own that I would ever be able to offer a prayer that is perfect and acceptable to God. What God demands of me is not so much that I would be sinlessly perfect before I can pray, but that I would not cherish sin. Do you know why that is? Unbelievers cherish sin. As a believer, it's your responsibility to hate, get this, your sin. See, it's easy to hate the sins of others, is it not? 
and we can cry out with our moral outrage. That's terrible. Look what those people have done. It's awful. Look at those sinners in our country, how they're acting. It's terrible. It's easy to hate the sins of others, especially those who are unregenerate and don't know better. You know what's hard to do? It's hard to hate your own sin. And if you're going to pray rightly, you have to not only acknowledge that you've sinned, you have to hate it. God, I do not bring before you a life that is sinless. I do not bring before you a a life that is perfect. I bring before you a life that has the life of Christ in it and he has taught me to hate my own sin and all of my prayer is not based upon my own righteousness but I pray through the Son today who he is my righteousness and through him I storm heaven. That's how prayer works. And so the first issue is to hate your own sin. God have mercy on me a sinner is what the man cried out in the temple. So here's the thing. You cry out fervently and hopefully, but you also cry out in purity. Having a pure hatred of your own sin. So, Pastor, that's unhealthy. I mean, I think that's psychologically unhealthy. We should be telling ourselves how good we are. Well, if you like to live by lies, go ahead. I just think that's a psychological problem. It's called being deranged. It's called thinking you're somebody that you're not. I mean, you might as well claim to be Napoleon. It's insanity to think that, that, that you're not much of a sinner. That's insanity. Somebody said to me one time, you know, I'm not coming to your church. I said, okay. I, I think they expected me to be, get really excited about that. And I said, may I ask why not? She said, ah, y'all a bunch of hypocrites. I said, yeah, we are. We don't nearly live up to what we know to live up to. Not even close. I said, but let me tell you the difference between those of us who are followers of Jesus and the rest of the world. We admit it. We come to him every week together and say, Lord, we don't measure up to what we know we ought to be we know we're not there the reason we came to Jesus to begin with is because we realize we're terrible sinner we have no hope there's no way we can live up to the glory of God we can't hit that standard we can't hit the mark we can't we just came we just can't do it so what they're doing is still holding out for the hope that they can do it and you tell me who's committing the biggest sin now The confidence that God acts through prayer, but truly God has listened, the psalmist said. See verse 19, but truly God has listened. He's attended to the voice of my prayer. So I'm going to admit to you something that being the pastor and having the answer to all things Bible, I'm going to go ahead and make an honest admission to you. I don't know how prayer works. I don't don't understand. I just don't get it. I I don't know how it works. I, I know this much. I know that somehow... God factors it in to bring about what he has already decreed shall be done. My my prayer doesn't change the decree of God, what God has established as his purpose, and this is what will take place. My prayer doesn't change that. It's funny, like, even in the Bible, when you have those times where God is 
condescending so that we kind of understand how he works and and he, he speaks of himself almost in human language like the hand of the Lord you know the arm of the Lord and stuff like that you should not see my face and stuff like that so he gives us those human type of analogies and then he also gives us uh, a reflection of, of human type emotions that are not absolutely the way that it is but it's the way that God can explain to us how he works and so we'll find out things like God says I'm gonna do this and then somebody prays and God says I won't do that then and we think oh okay so I've got God on the string like with prayer you know and so I got you and uh, but have you ever thought of the nonsense of that three kids are getting ready to go to the pool in the middle of the summer oh God please no rain and a farmer's over here and going oh God please give me rain and so do you think we're just jerking God around with prayer God's like I'm so dizzy with this I mean come on people do you know what really happens even in that scenario where God expresses himself in human ways, what really happens is that through the person's prayer, it gets accomplished what God had already decreed to begin with. Yes. So I don't know how this works. God acts according to the circumstances and situations for which his divine power has been infused into my life in order that I would pray what I prayed. Only thing I know is maybe it's this, that prayer is just God's way of making sure that I get to participate somehow. I, I get to participate. And it causes me to be aware of his acting in history and in my life and the lives of people around me because of prayer. And so that seems pointless to me. Well, then you don't get to participate. So it kind of reminds me, some of you uh, with your children... Uh, I'm just going to make an admission to you. Uh, I used to play Candyland with one of my boys. You know that board game? And one of them would cry if they didn't get to draw the card that's Queen Frostine. Now, I'm not going to tell you which one it is. They, they know who they are. The thing about it is, you know, when I was in preaching school, they would tell you, don't bring up illustrations about your family because it embarrasses them. Well, what's the joy in preaching then? I mean, come on. So, I mean, I don't, I don't get that. I mean, I remember writing in my notes, that ain't happening. So, Queen Frostine. So, you know, obviously, I mean, I, a 45-year-old man or whatever, I mean, I'm gonna, I can beat this kid in Candyland, surely. And you know what I did? I would cheat. It's amazing how many times Queen Frostine came up. Look at what you drew, buddy. Queen Frostine again. All right. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the goal of it was to have a happy camper, you know. So you just, and, you know, I just wonder. I mean, I, you know, I know that's kind of silly, but, you know, really, I'm not changing God's decree with my prayers, but he's letting me play. He's letting me have part in the game. And every once in a while, you just get to draw Queen Frostine in prayer. Like, I got it. I got Queen Frostine, man. And, and so you, you get to be the winner. I feel really millennial right now with that illustration. That's, that's so out of character. We got to get back to serious stuff here. Um, so it's bad when they can relate. Okay. So, you know, in prayer, we're just participating in God's great work. And don't think it's not effective. It's effective because God is going to energize you to pray the exact thing that he's going to do. And guess what? It's effective. 
It's effective. It happens right every time. So it just seems to be God's way of making sure that I'm in. Okay, so this is how God acts. I just, I just wanted you to think on what all God does and what he has done in our lives and in your life. So I, I want to go through this exercise here for just a moment. And I, I'm going to ask you to participate. I, I'm, wow, I'm feeling like very Bill Hybels today or something. I don't know what's going on with me. Um, so I want to ask you a question just by show of hands. How many in here have contracted COVID and survived? Would you raise your hand? That Mark back there, Paul. Yes, ma'am. Uh huh. Three, three of you. Anybody else? Now, now you know what that's like. It's like you know the Old Testament leprosy. Unclean. Yeah. <laughs> Stay back. Okay. So yeah. So unclean. All right. So, all right. So God has has done that. That was God's work. It was God's work that you got it. And it's God's work you survived it. What if he had taken you home to be with Jesus? Not a bad thing either. How many of you saw God preserve your job during COVID? Huh? Yeah, just look around. What God has done. <laughs> How many of you wish he had? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, like, hey, I'll try to get rid of that job. It just kept coming back. Um, let me ask this question. How many of you put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior in 2020? Anybody in here? We've got a few people that have trusted Christ through this time. All right. How many of you? have joined um, Chillicothe Baptist Church in 2020. Raise your hand. How many of y'all? Okay. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Now then, if this, this fits you, I'm going to ask you to stand if this describes you. How many of you are a member of a church who during 2020 surpassed its missions offering goal for North American missions? Paid an extra amount on the building debt even more than last year. Has all of its bills paid up to date? Even its staff members are eating. And is still faithfully teaching God's word every week. Is there anybody here that's a member of that kind of church? Stand up. See, here's what I'm trying to tell you. I just want you to see what God has done. God is faithful, he's powerful, he's continuing to do what he always does. The situation, circumstances that we're in, it's just another platform from which God can work. It's just another circumstance where people can go, oh, that's how God works. Now, I want you to bow your heads, let's pray together for a moment, okay? Father, we wanted to come to you today and just say to you, we see you. We see what you have done. And we honor you, glorify your name, and praise you for it. Forgive us, Father, for not being thankful. Forgive us, Father, for not being mindful of thanking you as we ought. And so, Lord, we stand here in your presence today to say, by your power and strength, you have brought us this far. And you have brought us through trials. You've brought us through difficulties. You've brought us through hard things 
And yet, Lord, here we are on the other side, seeing what great things that you have done for our soul. We thank you and praise you again, Father. Most importantly, and, and first of all, a priority above priorities is for sending your son Jesus to save sinners like us. And Father, for all of eternity, we will stand up in your presence and we will honor you and we will praise you and we will sing to the glory of your name. And these things we pledge and promise in Jesus' name. Amen.